Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Alan. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. LinkedIn presents. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Matt Lapman. He's the Senior Vice President for Card Acquisition Marketing at Discover. Matt joined Discover in 2019 as VP of Marketing, Pricing, and Product Strategy in their personal loans division. And we talk about his new role as uh, Senior Vice President of Card Acquisition Marketing. Prior to Discover, Matt was Chief Marketing Officer with Zero Financial, a financial technology startup. Matt also spent six years at Capital One in various roles, most recently as Head of Acquisition Marketing for their consumer bank. On the show today, we talk about acquisition marketing, how he breaks it down at Discover, what he thinks is critical to get acquisition marketing right, where does creative excellence and story or message fit into the picture, and how do you think about being recognizable and how important is it being recognizable in the market with your brand? So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Matt Lapman. Well, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about Discover. But before we do that, let's talk about travel. I hear you're not an everyday traveler. So tell me, tell me more about the adventures you go on. Yeah, so I'm actually leaving on Wednesday for Tanzania to do a safari. But I've also gone all over the world. I love to travel. Uh, my partner and I, we've she's more of an she brought the travel into our relationship, and and so we 
have been to probably 20 countries together. And probably the most interesting was when we were in Uzbekistan, <laughs> which is like going to Aladdin. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and one day we got into this town and, and you know, we checked into the hotel at night and we said, let's just go get a drink on this beautiful plaza. And this guy uh, tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, are you German? I said, no, we're American. And we thought we were in trouble. And he said, he was a police officer. And um, he said, why don't you, uh, do you want to be in a tourism video? And, uh, and she said, no. And I said, absolutely. And so we spent the next two hours sitting with, with one of the predominant journalists in all of Uzbekistan and a film crew and the tourist police filming the video of the Uzbek tourist police PR kind of promo. And so it, it can be found on YouTube, but I'm only in it for about maybe three frames. <laughs> Just to show that there there are tourists there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's a, that's crazy. Well, I mean, those are definitely not your normal travel destinations, but uh, sounds like you guys have a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it, it's a lot of fun. It it's definitely good to get an escape from everything that I see in work every day and really just change my frame of reference and and push myself in to clear my mind and come back and be able to do great work. Love it. I love it. Let's talk about work life. And um, you are now the head of acquisition marketing at Discover. Where'd you get your start and, and kind of what were some of the highlights, if you will, along that career journey? Yeah, I, so I started my career in management consulting and uh, didn't know what I wanted to do out of out of college and kind of liked marketing, wasn't really sure if I wanted to get into it or not, and saw a lot of different clients in, in healthcare and in, in industrial, in auto, in technology, and, and enjoyed the work and learned a lot of things that were similar across my clients different across clients, but I didn't really know how companies actually worked. I was just kind of consulting on them. And so I went and uh, and joined a startup called Living Social in the daily deal space and spent, got, was trying to figure out what we should run in terms of our daily deals. How big should the daily deals be? You do $20 for $40 of sushi in a city or or $1,000 for, um, for a LASIK treatment. And my boss said, why don't we start doing direct mail and we can send letters to merchants and get them to sign up for daily deals. And so that was really my first foray into true marketing work. After a couple of years at Living Social, I, I went, I joined a, a bank in the DC area and spent six years there running first small business marketing in the small business banking org, and then eventually acquisition marketing for their deposit products, and then left to join a startup. And for me, I wanted to join a startup because I wanted to, I had all these ideas and all these thoughts about how marketing should be run and what was possible. And I wanted an opportunity to try it. And we built a great product and had some operational and executional and financial uh, fundraising challenges. And, and ultimately, I got a call from a recruiter at Discover, and they said, there's this position in the personal loans group. And I had never done personal loans. At that point, I had done credit cards, small business, and, and, and deposits. And I said, it's always good to learn a different product in the space you're in and learn more about how customers are thinking about their needs, how, how, to, how to market something different, and, and joined Discover. And uh, within four months of joining Discover, we had a pandemic. 
And so everything that I knew about marketing and everything that I knew about customer experience kind of stopped. And we said, how, what is, what does a customer need? What, how are we supporting that need and how can we help? And like many other companies did, but I, I, I truly think one of the special things at Discover was how well we kept people on the phones. We kept our frontline mm-hmm. agents were just so amazing in answering questions and helping people through a really tough moment that it showed that empathy is kind of core to who Discover is as a company, core to our brand and core to our goal of enabling all people to build a brighter financial future. Yeah. So through that, I, I, I spent a couple of years on that team and that or almost three and a half years working in the in the personal loans group and then had the opportunity a couple of months back to join our credit card business. So you're now in the role of senior vice president of acquisition marketing. It sounds like primarily in credit cards. What is like how's the role constructed and what are your primary focus areas, if you will? So we lead all of the aspects of bringing customer through the demand generation funnel when they've expressed interest in a credit card in in, in many ways, or we've given them a pre-approved offer down through the application process. We partner closely with our enterprise brand team to align and 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 ensure that there's opportunities to bring more customers into the funnel. And we're starting to partner a lot more with our other lines of businesses, such as our deposit products and my old team in personal loans to find new opportunities to um, to bring people into the right products for them. Gotcha, gotcha. So it, it's it sounds like I me. Mean, it's fair to say, like, well, I guess you'll tell me if it's fair to say, but fair to say that like you're kind of optimizing, if you will, the discovery of discover and through the journey of getting their card essentially and it sounds like that could come from a cross-sell opportunity maybe somebody starts some personal loans and then opens a card or it could start from scratch like a net new acquisition absolutely one of the things that i find kind of most interesting about our brand is that when you talk to consumers that have an experience with us they absolutely love Discover. They love working with the brand. They get it. And if you haven't really had that opportunity to to work with us before, you really don't have that much of an opinion. And so a lot of what our team tries to do is find those those right conversation points that are going to get you to convert and kind of find that that meaningful thing, be it there's something that you want to do in your life and we can bring that, make that real in our marketing or something that we can find a really great way to communicate benefits in, a, in one of our affiliate partners. Whatever that moment is, we're trying to, our goal is to really just introduce Discover and show that it's a, it's a great product to try out. Well, and during the pandemic, which is when you were taking on this role as well, it seemed to be that Discover had, I was watching the space for various reasons, but it seemed to be that you guys were really making strides around simplifying your messages in market. The notion about empathy you talked about before, like, you know, I remember seeing, and still to this day, see ads with quote unquote real people, like in real situations and the connection, if you will, between the similarities between the people that work at <laughs> at Discover and the customers that you serve. And it feels like, to your point around empathy, that 
maybe it's just cordy or dna but it seems like a really interesting differentiating point for discover i don't know if you could see it that way or not yeah i think that's really just who who we are as a business mm. I'm from the East Coast, so I joke that it's the Midwestern values here. Uh, we're based in Chicago, so uh, in the Chicago area. So I get to work with people who are a lot nicer than I am. But it's it's really amazing to see just the amount of times that we talk about the customer in every conversation. And, and in other companies that I've worked for, the conversation around P&L or the expense forecast or the, or the use case came before what are we trying to accomplish for the customer i just think that that's very very much just what the culture is and how people operate so when you come into the culture one of the ways to succeed is to really lean into it well i mean you're in acquisition marketing what do you think is critical for people that are focused on acquisition efforts to get right like what what's what's top of mind for you and it doesn't have to be specific to discover but just in general like what where would you tell people to focus their most of their attention. Yeah, so the, I think the biggest thing is understanding what a bad outcome is. And I, I only say this because in our world, we might have, if you look at direct mail kind of across the industry, a good response rate might be 2%. And that's, a really, that's actually a very good response rate in a lot of areas, which means 98% is not selecting your product or can't be approved for your product. And so it's important to think about what are the reasons not to, because if you're going after consumers who either don't want your product or can't be can't have your product, it just doesn't make sense to me. For me, it's the key thing in acquisition marketing is cost to acquire and or measuring your cost for the action that you want on the other side. Mm and ensuring that you understand that those metrics are linked to profitability. So I don't understand why I'd spend money on marketing somebody who I wouldn't approve in the first place. Right, right, right. So getting a finer and finer targeting schema is is key in your mind. Absolutely. Okay, okay. All right, that makes sense. And how do you, I mean, this may not be in your remit today, but like, does that intersect at all with kind of like the air cover marketing that happens as well that I'm assuming is probably handled by the enterprise brand team. How do you it, see those helping each other, I guess? It it does. We try to understand each other's plans. I think we play in different parts of the funnel. For one, if the person is in the market for the product, then we're having a conversation with them and and we want to make sure that we're doing the things to get them into the acquisition flow. But I'm not going to hold on to audiences or, or do anything that isn't cost-effective for us. And there's plenty of, it, in, in many cases, it's more important to just make sure that people know our brand, make sure that that, that top-of-mind advertising is in place. Mm. We've really tried to lean in, especially of late, to a concept that there's always this concept of matching luggage, like all of your ads have to kind of match. I, uh, to mm. me, it's, it's a little bit of an overstatement. I tend to call it effortlessly stylish. Like you, <laughs> you want to make sure that the brand has a clear connection point, but at the same time, there's different needs. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily want a direct call to action banner on a, on a upper funnel 30 second spot. It just doesn't right. make sense. Right. But we we can't act as different brands. So mm-hmm. we, we really do try to connect. 
but also realize and recognize that we're trying to accomplish different objectives within our shared goal of getting people to understand who we are, getting people to consider us when they're looking for a financial services product and better and champion across the company the need to create cohesiveness so that it's just a really good experience across the board and delivering value to consumers and banking. I love that. Well, where does the creative excellence or the ability to tell a message or a story that you're trying to get, where do, how does that fit into the picture? Oh, it's it's classic. I mean, to me, that's that's best practice in marketing. Yeah. I remember when I took an advertising management class in business school, one of the readings was Ogilvy on advertising. And I, I keep the book at home and I probably read it about once a year just to review. And to me, it's the the tome that explains to any customer, you want that message, you want a direct mail message, or you want it even an even a mass advertising to feel like a letter from the brand to the consumer. You want it to speak to them. And the way that it's going to do that is a lot of understanding of who that customer is. I love it. And how do you, there's a lot of talk these days about AI or generative AI. How do you think that fits into you know, helping or not helping craft the right message or the right creative? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's going to definitely will help in terms of creating some structures and some baseline work. Yeah. But generative AI is the model, the class of models that are out now are predicting the most likely next word. Right. That's not good or bad. And because it's the most likely next word, it may actually, by definition, be average for what you're trying to accomplish. And so you can get it to a pretty good point. But to me, there's this concept of like there's soul in really Mm. good copywriting. Mm. And you can speak to somebody and you can create a connection and create a feeling where there's certain there's certain campaigns or certain headlines that, you know, certain campaigns that I've worked on where somebody's come up with a headline. And I emotionally stop in my tracks. (laughs) I have not yet, to my knowledge, read anything that Gen AI has created that had that same thing. It's possible. The infinite monkeys theorem. It's (laughs) an infinite number of monkeys, infinite typewriters. One of them will, will write Hamlet. But it is, it doesn't replace that kind of human overlay yet of understanding empathy, understanding what's going to create that connection and truly ensuring that you're aligned with what the customer need is. Yeah. No, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I think there's places for it. I think there's potentially ways that it can help speed what you're describing potentially. But at the end of the day, a human, I think, still needs to be driving, overseeing, honing, and improving what comes out on the other end but it's fascinating uh because it's as you know it's all the rage right now in the industry and everyone's trying to figure out either how to fight it Mm -hmm. and push back or how to embrace it and use it in its rightful place yeah still to be determined yeah i you know history has not looked kindly and fondly on those who resist technological shift, but there are opportunities to 
kind of figure out how we work it into making ourselves more productive. Mm. How do we change practices or do things kind of that we we just can't do? So doing dynamic creative optimization, it, it's really expensive right now to produce just the volume of pieces that you want to produce. And so if generative AI can help us do some things a little bit more quickly within the regulation. Like I, I think that's a good thing, but mm-hmm. I still would want that last edit for now and maybe for the foreseeable future to be a human eye. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, it makes me, it reminds me of, um, I think, I don't know if this is the actual credited first generative AI related commercial, but I think it might be. But Ryan Reynolds had done a commercial where I guess they used Gen AI to write the script or chat to be GTP specifically. Mm-hmm. But the the reading, <laughs> to your point, the human component of it and him reading the script and commenting on it as we go was what made the ad funny. Right? Oh, absolutely. Like, like, right? It wasn't the script. The script was hilariously right, but it was only hilarious because he was pointing it out. Right. I think that's an interesting, simple, simplistic model potentially to illustrate what we're talking about. Absolutely. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, how, how much, I mean, Discover is a recognizable brand. You're also competing with other recognizable brands. How much does having something that people instantly recognize matter? in what you're doing in terms of trying to connect people to the right things. You mentioned your effortlessly stylish <laughs> approach to creative, which I like, but just curious to get your comments on that. Yeah, I think first off comes a lot of responsibility whenever you get the opportunity to work in a on a brand that has been built over 30 plus years. And that brand is built through millions and millions and millions of transactions and interactions and touch points with people. 
and doing the right thing by our consumers for a very long time. And so I, I think first off, it matters and I wouldn't say it limits, but it does require a pretty high bar in what we are comfortable putting out there because every message that you put out there does affect your brand. Having been able to have the opportunity to launch a product into market at a startup, nobody knew our brand going in. So we had a lot of flexibility and opportunity to change what we were doing. Mm. At the same point in time, there's a nice benefit to people knowing who you are. There's an opportunity in terms of scale. So because we're well-known, because we're, you know, we've been around a long time, we get the, the ability to have larger budgets than I saw at a startup and be able to run some pretty large-scale campaigns and tests. So I can put a million pieces of direct mail in a test in market and read that fairly quickly. We can put millions of impressions against each other and test and learn. But we also try to balance that to make sure that the swing is large enough to to see true effect. Mm. The worst thing that ever happened to marketers is the famous Google Pixel test. Google and the test, if, if folks aren't familiar with it, is that they change the color of the Google homepage by like one hex color per day. And they wanted to see what the optimal color was. And this, the optimal white or whatnot, and this is just a famous, I, famous to the point that I think it was Google, but who knows. <laughs> but it was a large enough search engine where they had enough volume to read that. Mm. And even though I have very large volumes, my volumes aren't search type volumes, right? And so we have to make sure that we're going to be able to read the test on the other side. But I think that that's the biggest thing is do play within who we are as a brand, but still take risks and still make sure that we're taking enough where we have the right processes, procedures, and and feedback loops in place where we feel good about the risks that we're going to take. Love it. Well, uh, you know, kudos on, I mean, it is a recognizable brand in the marketplace. And to the earlier points around the type of work that I've seen more in the advertising space than maybe the work that you've touched directly, but it's, it is good work. And it's hard to be singularly focused in the message that you put out into the marketplace, but there's huge efficiencies to doing that that create the scale you just mentioned and the impact that can be related. As long as you pick the right message. <laughs> You know, that resonates with people, but I've seen and kind of observed, discovered doing that. And I I think that that's to be lauded and and looked at by other people, because I think a lot of people will try to pack 10, 20, 30 messages (laughs) into a 30 second spot. It's not going to work very well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and it's hard when you have great products to sell. So we yeah. we offer, for instance, an online privacy protection to any any one of our customers, as long as you sign up for it in our mobile app, is a really great thing. We go and remove, we'll send signals to a bunch of the companies that post your your name and address and stuff for sale on the internet. And we'll go put in all the removals. And we do that basically if you have five dollars in a checking account or if you have, you know, if you're buying a large $20,000 purchase on on your credit card. Right. And I would love to talk about that as you can tell, but I can't talk about that in <laughs> you know, a display ad. 
Right. right? So right. I've got to find ways and find opportunities to to bring those messages to life in the when it matters to a customer to get them to apply for a credit card. And if we, you know, and then and then our 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 partner team that does customer management marketing, they're going and ensuring that a lot of those features and benefits are that those stories are told so that customers can use them. Love it. Love it. Well, I appreciate learning a little bit more about Discover and kind of like the role that you fill there. One of the things we love to do on this show is to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we know you like to travel to maybe less traveled places than most most of us listening to this program. But my favorite question to ask everybody that comes on the show is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Yeah, so I think there's a couple. And from when I think about how I think about the world, it's a variety of experiences that were afforded to me by growing up in New York City. And I went to this magnet, public magnet school with uh, with just the most incredibly smart people, various background. And our teachers gave us these crazy challenges, like go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, look at these two pieces, and explain how you think that the artist has evolved in their career. And so being 14 years old and having teachers and classmates who force these neurons in my brain to connect in different ways has had a lasting impact both emotionally and 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 I guess biologically. And they would throw these like lofty research projects at us, which meant spending time in the Mid-Manhattan Library in New York, searching for truth in microfiche, which as I think about would probably be a good name for a band. <laughs> but who knows? It's instilled this motivation in me to to find an an answer in the data and always keep asking questions, which is really kind of probably the thing that is most core to who I am. As a leader, as somebody who, you know, leads teams, I would say another, you know, I worked for this partner in my consulting career and he gave me a lot of tough feedback. And when he did, he took the time to explain what he saw, what he'd like to see, what he thought my gaps were, and then checked in with me regularly. And so when I was 22 years old, I would send emails to clients that were super formal and they almost came off sounding rude. And he sketched out this X, Y axis and explained that formality and professionalism were different. And of course, I didn't know that at the time. I was 22. Right. But he offered his time to his kindness and his time to review emails before I sent anything big. And so I look back on that and and I saw him invest in me and I always tried to pay that back. So I do that with my teams. I, I try to give an offer and I feel like if somebody is willing to take the time to be part of a feedback cycle with with me as their leader, they'll, they'll almost, almost always invest back. So when you ask the question, those were the first two things that came to mind. No, I love it. I love those. And um, I mean, it sounds like the the school in particular, my daughter, who's 15 now, she went from like K through six, I guess. She went to a project-based school, private school, and uh, sounds similar, like very project-based focus, cross-discipline to some degree, lots of asking questions <laughs> and it it's an interesting way to learn because you're actually learning how to learn not the regurgitating the facts and figures that many of us had to do and we went through school so. oh absolutely and i i look at some of my 
classmates and all of the things that they've achieved in their career and all the things that they've done. And it's, yes, we all came in to this magnet school. We had to take a test in, but the common denominator was the education, was the way that they taught us to examine and explore. And I, I think my high school education, and I, I went to went to a great, I had a great college experience. I went, got my MBA. I just think I, I learned to learn much well before college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it makes perfect sense. And honestly, I think it's what you're supposed to be doing in college is applying <laughs> how learning about the subjects in a deeper way that you like to know. But a lot of times we're all figuring out how to process that way and do the the work at the same time. You definitely had a, a leg up. <laughs> So what advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over again? I think the first is we're all kind of figuring it out Mm -hmm. together. And sometimes we just have to take a moment to breathe and give space and grace to people around us. I think my EQ took time to catch up. And, you know, if I look back on my former self, there were moments where Had I looked closer at the situation, I would have realized that the person on the other end also was trying to figure out how to handle the situation. And maybe I didn't see it unfolding or I, you know, didn't really fully think through how much my words meant. Mm. So I probably have a lot of well-meaning sales reps that I need to apologize to. There are some really, really nice ways to point out that you've misspelled my name and or my company's ways. I just didn't choose those at the time. So I apologize to that list of people. (laughs) But at the same time, I just having that, taking that moment, taking that, putting into perspective that everybody has other things going on has been immeasurable in terms of my ability to have comfort in the decisions I make and the work that I do. And I could have saved a lot of time and effort for myself had I had I learned that a little bit earlier on. Yeah. No, I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, I've had, I don't know how many conversations with other executives like yourself. And one stands out in particular is CMO, who I'm exceptionally friends with. But he even put it this maybe even sharper point on it. He was like, man, if I hadn't like fell on my face and had somebody pointed out to me, I don't think I would have been able to get to the level I'm at now. <laughs> like, so to this, and, and it was all around this EQ notion, right? Like, he was moving fast, he was trying to drive impact. You know, sometimes you end up running over people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not what you maybe necessarily intend if you took the time to realize what was happening at the moment, but it's the end result. And that's the perception people take away. And he, he had similar feedback, which is like giving people space and grace, but also making sure that you're aware of what you're doing. And it sounds like you agree, but it's um, it's something that I think people that are listening to this, you could think about because it's, I think it's inherent in younger, hungry, aggressive type A people to push and knowing how hard to push and when to give that space and grace to use your words, I think is a, a critical skill to learn. Yeah, I recently was uh, heard Ari Emanuel say on on I don't remember what the podcast is. It's clearly not as as memorable. But I, I heard him say that being a leader is not about throwing punches; it's about taking them. Mm. And and that stuck out to me as well because all of that falling on my face was really just practice to be able to say, okay, in this 
much more important decision to people's lives, to people's careers, et cetera. Do I have enough pattern recognition? Have I seen enough examples? Have I failed enough to recognize this and make sure that I'm I'm assessing all the risks and coming up with an outcome and a, and a set of solutions that that works for as many works for people and 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 gives empathy to their situation yeah no that's good well if you are a uh, a natural learner we just talked about is there a topic that you either you're trying to learn more about now yourself or you think other marketers need to be learning more about so the first to me is 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 marketing in general. Like so there's so much great research going on in marketing analytics and and consumer behavior that I wish I got to spend more time in some of the academic research, but there's also so much great history in how to do things the right way, be it reading about David Ogilvy's books, Leo Burnett, Lester Wonderman, their lessons are still very relevant today and there's something that can be gleaned from those those moments of those kind of initial and, and and key moments of consumerism from a couple generations back. So to me, that's the first thing. I think the other piece is if we know how, you know, if we can spend time in our day-to-day learning a little bit about how some of the technology works. So mm. With Gen AI, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand, okay, how do the how do these algorithms work? What are they solving for? What's different? Why couldn't they do, you know, these before? Mm-hmm. That it helps me know where I can use uh, to our earlier discussion, where where there's value in using it and where where it may not work as well. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And getting under the hood, like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. I mean, I think helps you to know uh, to how it applies but more importantly probably is like what are the limitations like what are what am i potentially stepping into that i'm not thinking about and you can see that from you know the mm-hmm. the way that the news media has changed the discussion about gen ai over the last even 3 4 months so at first yeah. it was this magical thing that's going to change everything and then it started getting weird and you started getting some is it sent is it sentient or is it you know is it going to like come come alive (laughs) and you know i remember reading this article that this person wrote about how it took on a life of like a teenage woman that was trying to convince him to like leave his marriage or something and it was like very bizarre yeah and and some of that is again if the if the algorithms are working and going down a direction they're going to stay in that direction and they're just kind of optimizing for where the conversation is going so it means that we need to protect put protections around it it means that we need to it means that we we can't let you know it's probably not good for our own the way that our brains work will trick our brains if we enable the algorithms to work without any controls mm. but with an understanding of how things operate and how things work, I think that we can develop really good operating models to make use of Gen AI productive. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, something to monitor for sure and learn more about, like you said. Well, are there any trends or subcultures that you're following you think other people should take notice of? In my professional or my personal? Personal or professional. You can go in any direction you're at. <laughs> I watch a lot of weird 
<laughs> food videos. So people, okay. you know, street vendors making food in very large quantities, very all sorts of crazy things about, you know, scale production of food, not like mass production, but, you know, somebody who will have who will operate a stand with with 15 fryers and and they'll go just down the line frying fish or things like that and plate them mm. all beautifully. I, I spend a little too much <laughs> random time watching those. But from a professional, I think there's so many. One of the interesting things is how many people right now are talking about financial health and wellness. Mm. And I remember a few years ago at another company, I, I was trying to find credible spokespeople and it's pretty hard. You basically had to have a publishing deal. And mm-hmm. now so many people are monetizing through YouTube or TikTok or, or you know, pick your, pick your platform that you can evaluate dozens of potential influencers, watch their videos, find ones that really meet your brand. And they're doing some really great content. So all of a sudden, there's so many great people putting information mm-hmm. out and it's enabling people with a... a a newfound equity for who's in the space. So that's really cool to see. Yeah. No, uh, you'll have to send me one of those weird food videos too. I'm curious. Absolutely. It sounds like a production <laughs> magic trick in and of itself. <laughs> so you've got my mind spinning. But yeah, I agree on the influencer side. I think the industry has definitely matured. It's still maturing and so much more intelligence as a brand wanting to go into that world. To your point, like you can kind of drill in and figure out what you think would be best for you and actually get pretty good data and metrics out of it. It's not perfect, but pretty interesting for sure. Well, last question for you. What do you think is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? So besides Gen AI, (laughs) yeah, because we already discussed that a bunch. uh, I mean, it is probably the biggest opportunity and the biggest threat. Related to it, I think, is just how we think about machine learning and how we think about algorithms in terms of what we can you know how we target ads yeah. and what what the experience is for consumers and you know with changes in third party cookies coming to to the chrome browser and and you know coming to Google as a whole in in 2024 the algorithms and the and the math changes a little bit because you have to connect data in different ways there are certain things that we're not going to be able to do and I think that that's the right thing I think that the contract between people and publishers should be more explicit and at the same time I think people if that's a if that's a true conversation I think people are willing to accept advertising to not pay for content. But that's got to be explicit and that's got to be governed versus people think they're getting a free content or they, you know, or they they don't want to pay for something and and so now we're kind of sharing their information without a clear understanding of what can be shared, what can't be shared and how it's shared. I think our understanding of that, how we work it into our calculus, our models and how we find ways to talk to consumers in meaningful ways that that introduce kind of a, a different value proposition to them, to the publishers, and to us as a brand. I think figuring that out is probably the one of the largest, again, both opportunities if you get it right and threats if you don't right now to marketers. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I tend to agree with you. And I think the 
there needs to be more experimentation in that regard. Like, how can you do that without the data that we've been so reliant on historically and in a way that is valuable <laughs> to the to the experience of that consumer? More to be done for sure. And I you know, I don't know what the answer is because I think there's like a very like a you know, on one spectrum, there's like the high effort highly like probably in partnership with the publishers and the the content creators you know i.e through like influencers or you know even more highly produced things that becomes more like integrating your brand in some form or fashion into the content itself so it doesn't feel as much like an ad but then that's how do you achieve scale you know that you've historically had with the programmatic and machine learning components of it. It's a tricky one to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is going back to the basics yeah. of, do I have really good ads in the market that are going to differentiate mm-hmm. and, and going to be noticed? And and am I, am I thinking about creative as that, that third piece of right message, right place, place, right time. We've spent a lot of time over the last few years in right place, right time, and not enough on right message. Love it. Well, Matt, it's been fascinating having a conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Alan. Really appreciate it. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with post-production support from Sam Robertson. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love hearing from listeners. You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes and links to what was discussed in the episode today. And you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.